today I am blessed to be joined by the one and only Tom Elliott. Tom is the co-founder of Pizza Pilgrims. He is the recipient of multiple awards and recognitions, including Sorted Foods Best Pizza in London, and has co-authored a book on pizza too. Tom, thank you so much for jumping on this. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. So, Tom, um, as a total pizza fan and aficionado, I'm so excited to have this conversation because I, I get to speak to lots of entrepreneurs and lots of entrepreneurs I speak to seem to approach building a brand or building a business in a very calculated way around, okay, I see a gap in the market here, if we position the brand this way and there's footfall in this area. And it, it's very you know methodical in the way they do things and that's great. But I get the feeling when I read your backstory that this is a passion project and one born out of love of pizza how how right or wrong am I on that I think that's right I think to be fair we tried to be methodical and we did a lot of methodical type stuff and then as soon as you hit the ground you're like all of that's gone <laughs> everything I thought we thought when we first opened the the market stall in 2012 we were going to revolutionize the queue we were like British people they love a cube we're going to you know it's been it's been around for thousands of years we're going to change it we're going to have an ordering system whereby there are three pizzas on the menu we'll have three queues You've got a queue for the thing you want, and then we can immediately assess the demand of the three different menu items. We can just make them. We don't have to like even take orders. We're just like making based on the size of the various queues. And then you've got to like hand in a. You get given a marble, which you've got to go round, and it's a different color. And you've got. To, we had this whole thing planned out. And we were like, "This is it. This is our. This is our edge. We're going to kill this." I think we spent months planning it and ten minutes executing it, and then we were like, "This is a shit show. Let's just go back to a normal queue." So yeah, I think I think we. We've tried at times to be methodical, but quite often the stark reality of just doing stuff changes changes the plan. But that, and that's really interesting. And, and something you said to me just before we started filming as well is no ego. And I think scrapping the queuing system that you built over months and months and 10 minutes is a testament to that. How much do you think um, seeing you know other members of your family operating spaces before uh, running pubs, I believe as your parents did, how much do you think of that natural entrepreneurialism and that ability to see what's working what isn't comes from that or and and you know how, how much does the removal of ego play into being able to see th that execution is the key beyond ideas um I, I don't know i mean you know no ego is the classic thing that someone with massive ego would say but like <laughs> I, I think uh i think i think it's the number one, you know dying in a ditch over something is like the opposite to me of being you know somebody's running his own business or her own business like You've, you've got to adapt you've got you know everything everything is changing all the time like faster and faster and faster and like if you're not if you're not changing it all the time in some small way it doesn't have to be wholesale change but yeah I think you, you've got to be you've got to be rolling with the punches and I mean I'd say this on literally everything but like John Timpson my all-time number one favorite inspiration we had we had a day with him like probably one year into Pete's Pilgrims for some spurious reason I won't go to now but um yeah, I mean, this is a guy who, who, you know, has built an empire out of a shoe fixing business. I mean, it costs more you know, more money to mend your shoes today than it does to replace them. Then he bought a photograph developing business. I mean, you know, it, it, it's about adaption and like, what's what's the latest thing? How can we twist this in our way? And I think, you know, while sticking to what you're what you're actually about at the core, 
but you know we, we, you've, you've got to change it up otherwise you're not going anywhere mm. and how much did scalability of concept and delivery come into the early parts of, of the thinking when you were looking at this was this always something that you intended to be you know multi-site going to different places how, when, when did that that thinking change it was so little on our minds that much much further at the front of mind was get it up and running so that I can leave it and prove that I did something to get out of advertising. Nice. Like we were going to scale me down before we scaled it up. Okay. That was how much ambition there was. <laughs> so actually like we started, we started uh, in March, 2012 on the market stall in Berwick street after the eponymous pilgrimage. But, and uh, we, yeah, I, I was still working at the week magazine. I was coming down to do my lunch break working on the market stall amazing and then i think it was probably about so it started in march i think it was probably may time when i was like mm, this probably needs a little more of my energy than one hour a day and but i think i thought you know i'll do the summer summer will be busy and then by september i'll i'll you know i'll then have this great little like anecdote to go and tell the job interviews basically uh and then yeah by september it was like oh okay this is this could be a thing that's that's amazing and I'm glad you t touched on our advertising because I think it is something which is interesting to a lot of people because, you know, obviously the story of Pizza Pilgrim is amazing, but it started actually spinning out of a corporate career. What was the thinking behind that? Was that a difficult transition to make? It sounds like it was something which you were desperate to happen. I, I think so. I mean, like, no, you know, I, I worked in advertising for six years, seven years. And it's an amazing industry in many, many ways, but you don't all get to make the Black Current Tango advert like, that you know you don't all have those moments where you're like i was i made that quite a lot of the time you've made stuff that you don't tell any of your mates you made <laughs> or you post a national billboard campaign with a spelling mistake in it and take all the all the hit for it which is what i did but yeah you know i did it for six years it, it wasn't for me i wasn't very good at it it was a, it's a very much a there's a sort of yeah my role was an account manager which is basically you're the kind of court the quarterbacks are the creative guys and you're like the big fat guys who stop the creative guys getting mm -hmm. hit and I, it just, I wasn't very good at it. I just, I couldn't, I quite often would side with the client on their particular point of view. And that's like complete no, no, like as if the client who's worked in an, in a business for 25 years would know what that brand would be about. How <laughs> dare they? So like, yeah, I, I struggled with it quite a lot. And I think, um, yeah, we, as you said, you know, both me and my brother have come from a, a family that have always worked for themselves, run shops or antique businesses or pubs or like lots of sort of trading and I think uh, I think working in a proper job never felt like it was going to be the final resting place. So how did you come to working in a proper job? How did I come? So I uh, went to uni and uh, as I was leaving uni, like all of my mates, and I mean all of them were going into, I, mean, I think they all literally went into law, finance, accountancy, management consultancy, advertising. I would say literally every single one of them, which is absolutely fine. I've got nothing, nothing against that. But... Um, so I was like, well, yeah, that's obviously what I've got to do too. And the one that I knew I didn't have to wear a suit in was advertising. And then out of this complete like luck, we, I was working behind the bar at the pub in Dorset one day and someone came in and he happened to be the president of one of the advertising agencies. And I basically just never let him leave until he said, yes, you can come and do a week work experience. No way. And so, yeah, and it went from there. And I went and did a week work experience at this big global agency called TBWA. Um, and I worked on the McDonald's account and it was, Genuinely, still the most fascinating thing I ever did in advertising. That That is a business. Whatever you think about McDonald's, it's an amazing business. I mean, oh, yeah. 2006. This is a business in 2006. All the milk they used was organic. All the eggs they used were free range. 
all the meat they used was like GM free from Britain and Ireland. Like everything was just so ahead of its time. Wow. But but they because they're McDonald's, they can't talk about it. If they put their head above the parapet and go, by the way, guys, we're, we're doing this great thing, there was just like rain of machine gun fire of how bad they were. Wow. So I, I joined the business at the time, 2006, when it was it was at a bad place, and they just put. Um, Remember that movie, Super Size Me? I do. That yeah. had been the free DVD, if you remember those kids, uh, on the on the front of the Guardian the day before I joined. Wow! And so, like, McDonald's was really like the whipping boy, and as you look at it now, and it's you know, it's obviously back to its. And like I say, you know, there are issues with it, the scale of it, the you know, the sort. I'm not saying it's a, an, an amazing thing, but the things they can get right, the employment mm. stuff, is unbelievable. Yes. Like it, it's you know the, the percentage of people in the US, and I forget it because moron but the percentage of people in the u.s whose first job was mcdonald's and their role in the economy of being like the gateway to work it's, it's wow. huge stuff and um anyway I, I i think i think they they put a lot of a lot of the right feet forward that's, but yeah sorry no no sorry i was just gonna say that's incredible and i think um actually when a brand like mcdonald's is doing these incredibly progressive things which at the scale that they are, will have a massive impact on the environment, on, on the economy, whatever it is, and not being able to talk about it actually gives me so much more faith in corporates than I would have. I think that's the thing, is that like, you want to assume they're screwing you over. And I think probably that's built on the fact that in the 70s and 80s, they really were. <laughs> like, I think I think if you look back then, I bet there was some pretty dark stuff going on. Mm. And I suspect that, that you know, that's that hung over to the, to the current time. But yeah, I think, you know, you, sometimes you've got to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I think, you know, particularly with McDonald's, that they could be doing it a lot worse than they are. Interesting. Okay. And I can't believe we're talking about McDonald's. <laughs> it doesn't feel like the big risk entrepreneur vibe that you were hoping for. That's all right. We're getting to it. We're getting to it. Um, one thing which occurs to me, obviously, with a background in advertising, you know how much it is that brand sells a story and the importance of a good story. And then I come to the pilgrimage, right? How much of that is by design? How much of that was, you know, fortuitous? How, how do you see that part? Because it's such a strong brand. It's really, it's a really good question. I think uh, it, it, it was born of necessity. It was cheaper, genuinely cheaper to go and get the van in Italy. I think it saved us like a couple of thousand pounds mm -hmm. to collect it there, register in Italy than it was to get it imported. That was where we started. But like, I think we quickly realized that once we got that kind of necessity out of the way, it was like, well, we, we definitely don't know anything about pizza. This is not a business that was born of like a 20 year love affair of pizza. It was again, like, you know, in, we talk about calculating. We'd fallen in love with street food because we'd seen it as a way, an avenue to start a quality food brand with no money. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that, you know, before that you either had to open a restaurant. Well, I mean, that was your only option, basically. Um, uh, and so w when suddenly you could go and open a market stall and be considered alongside some of the greatest food options in London, whereas before it would be like, you're a market stall, you're obviously no good. That that change was the, the bit that like lit us up. And then we, we saw that movement happening and gaining energy and um, uh, and and we looked at it and no one was doing pizza. Mm. And so th there was a sort of, there was a love of that thing, but actually quite a calculated like, oh, there's the gap. Yes. The reason the gap is there is because you need a one-ton pizza oven to make pizza, and you need a, you need one griddle that you can carry under your arm on the tube to make burgers. So, yeah, that's that's the distinction that we missed. So the the barrier to entry, as I believe they would call it, is uh, is higher. But um, I, I genuinely believe, and this is going to sound. I was talking to Petra, who was the founder of Curb. I don't know if you yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
we were, they had some stuff for their 10th birthday. We were talking, I genuinely believe in 30 years' time, they'll look back at 2011, 12, 10, 11, 12 in London, food scene, and, and equate it as a kind of like 1966 music scene. Yeah. Like it, just the amount of unbelievable London food businesses that started in those three years. You know, everything from Deschum, Honest Burger, Flatiron, Pizza Pilgrims, and obviously millions and millions of others. Like, yeah, it was just a really special moment. It just sort of all clicked together. And the street food scene was the absolute central part of that. A hundred percent. I remember it so well because I, so I was in uh, at uni from 2010 to 2013 and I did internships during the summer right. in London. I literally had one uh, across the street, uh, well, a couple of roads away. It was on um, just off White Cross Street of old street which yeah, is yeah. obviously you know a great market yeah absolutely and i remember like those summers it was like wow and there was all these new places popping up whether it was um uh, you know um the lot the gallery in shoreditch whether it was the outside yeah um, the whether it was the original night tales like all of these new um street food places just opening up left right and center and it was it was amazing and so many of my friends ended up building street food brands off the back of those summers like one of my best friends is um don't know if you come across wingman's before I literally walked past Wingman's today Fine. Uh, in Soho, and we used to trade next to them in um, a BST Festival. Yeah, They're yeah. really great guys. Which is your friend? D- so David's been my best friend since we were 11 years old. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm so pleased to see them doing so well, because they are. Yeah. They it took them a while, but they bloody deserve it. And now they're, yeah, I, well, I walked past Soho today. And do you know what? I actually thought today as I walked down Old Compton Street, they're the busiest restaurant I've walked past. Yeah. So I was really happy. Yeah, that's that's so nice to hear. And, um, you know, I, I told uh, David that you're coming to podcast. I was like, oh, you must know Tom. And he was like, yeah, I don't know if Tom remember me. But, yeah, you know, it's... Uh, it's been a while. But, um, but no, I do. They 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 were really good guys. Yeah, really that's awesome. And, but, and it was all based off, off, you know, those summers that we spent going to these new street food places. And, and you know, I've seen what you're talking about in front of my eyes. And I think it's, uh, it's a really, really special time. And how do you think that has evolved? Because I feel even in the last 10 years, like people's understanding of like healthy food has gone up so much. Like people are so much more conscious about what they're eating. So how have you seen that impact what, what you guys are doing, if at all? I mean, I think, I mean, it's been a huge change. I think we, we were always, uh, partly because we're just not cool, but our, our whole thing was like, we want to be approachable for everyone. We want to be, we always talked about being classic, not cool. Like we just want to be like dependable, really good, fun, like, you know, all the right things, human, all those things, but not, not like, and, and by definition, anything that's cool is of its moment. Mm. Like, it's very, very hard to be cool for a long time. There's like Clint Eastwood and that's basically yeah. it. <laughs> so like, I know he's probably been cancelled now, I'm yeah, sure. I'm sure. Um, so, you know what I mean? It, it, it's hard to, to, to be cool. But I think that the thing that was big when we started out, the, 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 the big trend that grew and grew and then kind of fell off a cliff, I think, was this kind of like, meaty man mm. food like dirty you know get your hands in yeah. tear it all apart with your teeth yeah. thing um and there was a lot of that and i just think i think about that now and if you if you put that in 2023 20, it would just completely 100%. implode on itself Whereas in 2015, that was the thing. I, yeah, when he had like Red's True and like all, all these of those of guys. Red Dog. And, and it's so funny. I don't remember, like you couldn't walk around a corner without running into pulled pork. Like it was such a big thing. And it's that's one of the, the things that I've noticed is it must be really tough for those businesses because the, I just think people are so much more environmentally and health conscious that it's, yeah, you just don't see them blowing up in the same way. But I think I think there's still businesses that have that same, you know, 
they're still unhealthy food. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But it, it was just that like, that like, it's that dirty, that word dirty, that real feeling of like, yeah, we're going to <laughs> get amongst it. And, you know, dirty burger was the obviously, like, yeah. obviously the eponymous version of it. And um, yeah, I just, I just don't think that thing is as relevant as it was. I, I think it's still relevant and it's still here and there are plenty of great businesses doing it. But for a moment in time, it was the thing. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what the thing is right now. I mean, there was, there was a sort of weird wave of... Um, Sort of Peruvian food was mm-hmm. big for a while. There was mm-hmm. a couple of things that opened up, and they're they're still going. But I think there was a, there was a moment for that. Uh, what is the what is the thing? Now? I mean, it probably is like clean living, and I mean alternative meat. Yeah, yeah. alternative meat, a hundred percent, and also a lot of lower no in terms of alcohol. Yeah, seems to be very in right now. Lower no is so in. Yeah, it's amazing. The amount of people I speak to, particularly in hospitality, are like, I don't drink anymore. Yeah. It's amazing to me. Which is, you wouldn't say that 10 years ago in hospitality, Ooh. right? No, 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 no. I think we're all just getting old. I just speak to old people who don't drink anymore. Yeah, it could be that. It could be that. So talking about, you know, big movements in, in the, the trends and state of consumer habits, obviously you guys were there front and center during um, lockdown with the at-home offering. Um, how did you guys get through that that lockdown period? And, and has do you see any of the changes in consumer appetite or change of behavior have carried through or are we back to where we were before uh yeah i i mean i think so yeah i mean obviously it was it was the biggest rug pull you could possibly have as a business that depends on people leaving their home when people are not allowed to leave their home that was on no one's business plan for sure uh so yeah it was it was pretty scary i mean the the week there was a horror week where boris bless him uh, was like, don't go to restaurants. I think on the Monday he said, don't go to restaurants, but announced no mm. support. Didn't close the restaurants, just said, don't go to them. And then that obviously our sales fell off a cliff. We took the decision that we're going to stay open, we're going to trade, we're going to take every single pound that we can take to protect as many jobs as we can protect. We kept everyone on. And then on that Friday, I think it was on the Friday of that week, they announced the furlough scheme. And we were all sitting there and, you know, you'd heard some rumours and you're like, well, maybe it's going to cover 60% of the of people's salaries. And it was, you know, it was, these were, all the people that we work with and love and wanted yeah. to protect. And I remember like when, when they announced it was 80%, it was just like the relief, the mm. feeling of relief was just like, oh my God. So we, we you know, we didn't let anyone go. Wow, um, that's incredible. Uh, which we, yeah, I mean, we were so happy about that. That was a big moment. And so, you know, we, all of our head office team, you know, on the 1st of uh, January, 2022 was the same as the 1st of January, 2020. Amazing. And, and, you know, lots, huge swears. Obviously, a lot of people chose to go. A lot of people choose to go back home. Um, we had this cra- crazy early warning sign in our business because obviously we have a lot of Italians being a pizza business. And they were they were having it all three weeks before us. Yeah. So they, they, we were getting a lot of people going. When we were sort of going like, oh, this is just the flu. Everyone get over themselves. We were getting a lot of people calling, you know, calling head office and being like, wow, I don't want to come to work. My so mum has called me and told me not to come to work. Like my wow. mum thinks it's not safe. That that kind of stuff was starting to happen, and and we weren't there. And we were like this, but it was it was pervasive through the business. So were you able to implement anything when you started getting early warning signs, or or was it still a case of? You well, know? we we took the decision to, as I say, to, to trade as hard as we could. We like we went out to the whole business, um, and we're just like, look, our plan is to. Obviously, this is really impacting us. Our plan is to try and take as many pounds as we can. Every pound that we take is someone's job that we've saved. That's the plan. If anyone is too scared to come to work, doesn't feel comfortable to come to work, is particularly vulnerable to this, has any, you know, we, anyone who doesn't want to come doesn't have to come. You can stay at home. Obviously, we're not going to be able to pay you to sit at home. But if that's the decision you want to make, 
we're a hundred percent respectful of that. So we did that, and I, I think probably probably twenty percent of of people did say they didn't want to come. Really, but I think I think you know quite quickly people started to realize that you know if you're twenty one, you know it's it's not a big it's not a, as big an impact as it could be for for an older person. But yeah, I, you know, so obviously it was a very very quick thing. I think you know by the mid March or whatever it was, everyone was sat at home. Every every store was closed. It felt super weird. And I think I think it probably only took two or three weeks for some of our more like uh, impatient managers to start calling and being like, you know, I've I've been at home for two weeks. I want to get out. Yeah. What, what what's the plan? And so we yeah, me and James obviously were just my brother was very confused about having our you know all of the ovens off did not feel right. So um so we sort of hatched a plan to open a site to do delivery because that was obviously at that point it was like you're a key worker. Yes. We also filled some time. We did some like we did some drops for the NHS and pizza drops for the NHS, that kind of stuff. We we did little things like that, but you know I think we were all keen to like try and like start start at least one fire burning, so to speak. So we opened that that uh, delivery business in Victoria, and I think before we opened it, we were like, wouldn't it be cool to try and do something else to augment this? Because let's be honest, no one gets out of bed to work in hospitality for delivery. I appreciate delivery is big, uh, uh, but you know it's not it's not the reason that you work in a restaurant. So, you know, to only do it didn't feel like the most exciting way. So then we, yeah, and that, that's where my brother was like, well, I've had this idea. Why don't I, like, send it through you? And he sent me this box of pizza ingredients wrapped up in wool with ice packs. And I was like, this, I mean, it turned up in like an elephant had town. Right? I mean, it was just, every, I've still got the picture of it just, like, exploded in this box. But it was, it was food safe temperature. It had gone through the post overnight. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we decided it would be fun to, to kind of incorporate that in literally as like a way to put something on Instagram so we're open again. Yeah. So we made 50 of the boxes, put them up uh, on 9am on a Wednesday morning. We're like, let's, let's sell 50. If we can sell 50, that'd be great mm. in, in the rest of the week. Put them up at 9am on Instagram and by 9.01, they'd sold out. Wow. And so then on That's the next, mad. it was, it was a real like oof moment. Yeah. It was like, cause I'd built this like hokey Shopify because I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I feel like you guys were the first, if not one of the first, to be doing this in London. I think Patty and Bun were ahead yes, of us. Okay, I reckon I they were a week or two ahead of us, but I don't think anyone else was. Yeah, yeah, because um, that was the first time I had Pizza Pilgrims. Was it really? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, see, and and so many people did. I mean, it, cause, I mean, not only because you know it was it was just a new audience we were reaching, but also you know if you live in Bolton or you know, Huddersfield, there is no pizza pilgrim. Yeah. So this was the first time that we could reach a, a national audience. So yeah, we did 50 on that Wednesday, 50 on the Thursday. Uh, again, like sold out even quicker. And I think at that point I was starting to understand Shopify and you could see that like 200 people had tried to put it into the basket in that minute. And so you were suddenly like, this is this is quite weird. And then we had a, a you know, talking of risk, mm -hmm. we had a, a crossroads, a sliding doors moment on the Friday where we were like, well, we have two options here. We either play this smart and sensible and we like slowly build it up and we, you know, we slowly build the infrastructure to make this happen. And we kind of, you know, we do 50 today and then maybe like 60 tomorrow and, you know, build, or we just go, here are all the kits. If you want one, buy one. And so we literally took the decision to be like, we're going to put 1200 kits for sale. We're not going to tell you when you're going to get it because you're locked in your house. You, we, we, we committed to getting it to you. I think this was probably 1st of April. We committed to getting your kit by the 1st of May. Okay. But you didn't get a date because that was just the deal. So you buy it with that kit, and we sold twelve hundred kits in forty minutes, and Jeez. that was that was the busiest trading hour in the history of Pilgrims. <laughs> and then we were like, "Shit, 
<laughs> we've got to go and build an infrastructure to do this. Wow. And it was then just like a comedy of like chest freezers and ice packs and yeah, just figuring it out. And it's uh, it's amazing because in, in my space on, on sort of VC and investment side of things, we saw off the back of that, we must have seen 20, 30 businesses raising hundreds of millions in venture capital just to try and make that their day-to-day business. So it's amazing to see how you know foresighted you guys were and, and right time, right place and, and everything else. But All of that um, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, now I'm guessing, is that still part of it? So it's, it's an amazing thing. So obviously it was that and we were kind of like, you know, it, it really got us through sort of emotionally, I guess, through lockdown. By February 21, we were doing... Cause it, Initially, everyone was a bit like, what the hell are you selling me? We used to get emails being like, it's frying pan pizza kit, it was called. And we'd get an email being like, I ordered it, but where's my pan? I don't understand <laughs> it. Like, I've got a pizza, but I wanted a pan. Uh, we, loads of, there's loads of people being like, I just do not understand what this is. <laughs> That's amazing. By the end of the year, like a lot of other restaurant businesses had done this. And so the kind of concept was more embedded in like consumers' minds, I think. So by like February 21, we were doing 10,000 a week, which, you know, was big. Like, wow. we had a proper factory going. We had, like, all of the people who would have been, you know, were working in the restaurants were now working in, some of them begrudgingly, but there was at least a job there, working in, you know, working in this production facility. Uh, and then, obviously, the world came back. It went down and down and down and down and down and down and down. Obviously, the last thing people were thinking about doing was making pizza kits at home. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know what, we... we partly because we love it, partly because it's part of our story, partly because, you know, I like meeting someone in the pub in... Huddersfield, let's say, why not? And uh, saying, why don't you try one of these kits and get to send them? Uh, our MD gives away more kits than, I mean, we can make, basically, as far as I can see. But yeah, I mean, last week we we did um, we did about 500 kits. Oh, we have, wow. We have 300 and something people who subscribe. Um, we, you know, we made, made a proper profit last week. Amazing. Uh, and it's growing again. And I think, you know, weirdly, from being, you know, kind of like... Um, kind of like Forrest Gump, I guess, like, you know, be the last trawler. Yeah. Being, being the last trawler left is a thing. And I think we basically are the last trawler left. Wow. Everyone stopped doing it. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, we, we, we really love it. And it's a nice expression of, it's a nice part of the history of the business. It's a nice expression, nice expression of what we do. And, and frankly, like customers really like it. Yeah. You know, I, I have two young kids and I would love to go out on a Friday night and I don't. So actually... Yeah making a pizza with them if you know i don't personally dream about making pizza i can imagine you've done you've done sort a fair of, share sort of, of that. covered that one <laughs> but yeah the idea of it you no know, people really love it amazing and in terms of risk were there ever occasions during lockdown where you could see you know the economics of doing this straight to home where you don't have the same overheads you do previously was there ever a temptation to be like mm, okay let's really invest in this infrastructure because this could be the future and then how does that pan out with all the well yeah are things going to go back to normal you know yeah absolutely and i had uh, only yards from here i had a very uh in-depth conversation with david who runs grind who had taken a similar twist uh you know and they've obviously got they 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 had moved to like at home coffee more so than cafes and I had this whole conversation with him and he was like betting the house on it. And I think we came to the conclusion that like at home coffee was more established than at home pizza. Sure. And so probably don't bet the house on it. But we we, we definitely talked it. We definitely talked about betting the house on it. Um, but I think ultimately, like when it really comes down to it, the, the real joy we get, the, the real joy we get out of what we do is, is the pizzerias. Going in there, feeling the buzz of it, like the energy of the place, people having a nice time, hopefully 
that's the reason you do it. No one gets into restaurants to do to make money. Mm. And you could see it so evidently. It's so interesting, you know, people, different people, like taking waiters who live for the buzz and the people and putting them into a sort of food production environment. They're all miserable mm. because they're like, I, you know, I don't want to be here. I want to be in a place where there's a load going on and I'm, you know, there's people around me and it's exciting and energy and like, whereas the next person couldn't think of anything worse than being in that energy space and like all those people around and buzz, they just want to be told what to do, get on with it, like that, yeah. you know, in a quiet way. So I think me and James are both the former. Nice. Okay, beautiful. So talk to me about co-authoring a, a book on pizza. What was that experience? Is that something that you envisioned early on? Like we're going to make a book about this? How did that come around? Well, <laughs> we actually uh, we actually wrote a book before we sold a pizza. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of weird. Because we went and did this pilgrimage mm-hmm. originally. Um, so we, we set up the idea for the pilgrimage. And then I emailed my boss at work uh, in the advertising agency. She was very senior. She was like the... Um, strategy director or something i'd never met her but i heard on the grapevine that she was leaving to start a bakery in cambridge i was leaving to start a pizza company so i, I just emailed her and said look you've not met me my name's tom I, i'm a lowly account person in your <laughs> massive empire but uh here you're going to start a, a bakery i feel like we need to go for a beer because i'm going to go and start a pizza company went and had a beer with her in camden where she lived and it turned out her husband was um uh, a food critic a bbc food critic i had no idea about this i called tim haywood who is still the food critic of the FT and he's on the food show quite a lot and that kind of thing. And he was the guy who was like, so wait, you're going to Italy to pick up a van? Like, this is like the biggest media opportunity you've got. Like, you're two guys quitting your jobs to go and learn about pizza in Italy in a ridiculous vehicle. Like, it's like someone wrote it down, like, go and pitch it. So we then went out and pitched it to all these TV companies. This was probably, so I quit my job in like June. Uh, we went on the pilgrimage October. I reckon this was like July 11, July, August 11. We went and pitched to all these people like Pat Llewellyn, who's a legend, TV legend. She discovered Jamie Oliver. We pitched to her. She was like, I love it. It's great. We really want to do it. But, you know, we've got to, you know, we've got to go down. We've got to go through the treatments. We've got to get a broadcaster on board. And we were like, we're doing it in October. So yeah. you either come in in October or we're, we're going. And so we pitched these three things, um, fresh one, optimum and, uh, one other that I forget, and then a, th- uh, a fourth one was called Rampage. It was a tiny little startup. They'd done a couple of little projects, mm-hmm. and they were the only ones who were like, "Let's do it. Let's just freaking do it on risk." Nice on risk. So there you go. Got risk in again. So um, so yeah, we went and made this TV show. So we what became what was supposed to be a week drive back through Italy became a four week drive. Took a whole film crew with no plan for it to be anywhere. And then literally got back and we had a feature, I'll never forget it, in the Hammersmith and Fulham Chronicle or something like that. And some agent woman emailed us and was like, just seen your little, I mean, it was literally the size of a cigarette packet, if you remember all the size of them. And uh, like, you know, have you got representation? And we were like, what do you mean? What is that? And yeah, we ended up writing a book about called uh, Pizza Pilgrims, The Backstreets of Italy, Recipes from the Backstreets of Italy with HarperCollins. And this was in 2000, and that came out in May 2012. And we'd only started selling, we'd written it basically by early 2012 before Mm -hmm. we started selling pizza. Wow. But that was always, it never sat well because it was, we had no idea what we were doing. We were led by all the other people around us. And the the book was full of recipes like gnocchi. And it was like, we don't know anything. We have no, we have no context or reason to talk about gnocchi. Um, So that kind of always sat weirdly with us. And we just always felt like we'd missed a trick. And then we just kept talking to people about 
we want to write a book about pizza. Yeah. Pizza is what we're about. And so, you know, after banging that drum for about eight years, um, finally someone someone listened and we got the chance to write this amazing love letter to pizza. And it's yeah. just, it's lovely. It's, it's, it's everything we want it to be. It's recipes. It's like city guides. It's, you know, our favorite fictional moments in movies about pizza. It's, it's just like this big kind of like geek thon about pizza. Yeah. And um, it's exactly what we wanted it to be. And that, it, it sort of writes the wrong of the first book. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I wasn't aware of the first book. And, and that must be such a good feeling to be able to go back full circle and say, yeah, this is what it was supposed to be. That must be that must be a great day. It was. It was a good day. It felt like, tick, that one's gone. <laughs> we can forget about it forever. We can purge it from our lives. Unfortunately, we haven't managed it with the TV show, which is, uh, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> Not many people watch it, though, which is only saving grace. Okay, fine, fine. All right, Tom, I've got five questions to ask every guest that I'd love to ask. Pow, let's go. Tom, what is the single biggest risk you've ever taken, and what was the outcome? The single biggest risk? Oh, my God, it's such a big question. <sighs> I mean, there's such a boring answer in that, like, it is Pizza Pilgrims, but... Like, this is going to sound really boring. It's a really crap answer. The way I feel about Pizza Pilgrims, everyone always says, like, oh, how did you take such a big risk? I'm like, we didn't take a risk. There was no risk there at all. We hated our jobs. I wasn't married. I didn't have a mortgage. I had no kids. I was 28. Zero risk involved. We literally went and did a thing, and we did it on a credit card, and I think we probably spent, like, eight grand. Like, you know, not ruinous amounts of money. There was no risk involved. Like the risk was not taking it. But today, right now, we're taking bigger risks than ever. Like I genuinely think the biggest risk we're taking is like happening right now where, you know, we're looking at some sites that I probably can't say. But like, I, I guess the point I'm trying to say is like the risks grows for me for every day. Like, me and my brother still have everything riding on this business. Like if something, if pizza suddenly turns out to, you know, kill people, <laughs> yeah. we've lost a lot. <laughs> so like, I don't know, we're not, everyone always talks to us, you know, that we're these massive risk takers, and we're just not. Actually, our biggest risk is today. And so I think I, it's a crap answer and it's a non-answer, but in a sort of business kind of way, that the, the biggest risk we're taking now are the ones we're taking today. The decisions we're taking, which are changing like hundreds of people's involvement in the business or, you know, a menu change or a new site that could be like a ruinous because it's just too big. We've never done something that we've never done something that's like silly mm. i think as you go you get more and more calculated unfortunately mm -hmm. the spreadsheets get bigger and there's more people looking at the spreadsheets and it's a really crap answer do you, you know what something more interesting no i actually don't think it's a crap answer for two fundamental reasons one i think you may underestimate how much some people would perceive leaving a very safe corporate career at the age of 28 is I think especially now with the amount of pressure young people put on themselves where it's like, oh God, I've got to have everything figured yeah, out by 23, yeah. let alone 28. Yeah. So I think for a lot of people that is a massive risk. But I also think, so I think it's a great answer because it's very easy once you have something that's working to stop taking risks and being like, well, you know, we know what we're doing. If we just keep on doing our bread and butter, then they'll be fine. So the fact that you are actually as scared now if not more scared shows that you're really pushing the needle and i think that's a great lesson to any entrepreneur that says you know if, if you just want to stay still that's fine but if you want to grow and you want to do the the empire and want to go as far as you can you've got to continue taking that sort of risk i, th I think you do and i think you know it's it's none of it's ruinous stuff but like you know 
in Brighton, we put a football pitch in the pizzeria. No one thinks that's a good. No one thought that was a good idea, and it's actually worked out great. But you know, there's a danger that it becomes novelty, or anyway. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting one. But I, I am obsessed with this idea that, like, you know, I've got young kids, and I, you do, parents obsess about why are my kids different to other kids. They're like, this is what kids do. My kids should be doing the same thing. You want you obsess about conformity. And like everyone being the same, like if your kid is deviating from that, you know, what is perceived as like normal in school, it's a problem. And it's a meeting with the teacher and it's a like, oh my God, my kid's not doing what other kids, he's not normal, she's not normal, whatever. So you, you freak out about conformity until they hit 18 and then you pray that they're going to do something <laughs> non-conformist. So I'm like, where does that flip happen? Because like you've got to pick, you, you've either got to celebrate non-conformity from the get-go or you know, want people to conform the whole way. But there's this weird flip where it's suddenly like, well, you know, the people we look up to are the people who don't conform. Yeah. But then we spend 18 years of our children's lives telling them that conformity is the answer. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it is fascinating. And I think it's only in the last few years that we start having appreciation of what the developmental journey of those maverick individuals was. Yeah. Because there's that assumption, probably initially, oh, Richard Brands must have been a great student or like whatever it was. Yeah. So I think it's only now that we're starting to see that. But it's interesting as someone who doesn't have kids that there is still that desire to see them maybe not fit in a box, but go down a more traditional route, which is interesting. But I think, you know, with with the appreciation of neurodiversity increasing on a month-by-month you know, -month basis, I think this these can only be good things. But I think, um, you know, from the way that I see it and so many of the entrepreneurs who I speak to with young kids, like, we want to figure out what our kids love and just support them in that. You know, absolutely unlikely to be academic, right? <laughs> absolutely, and like I think that's right. I think you've got to you've got to do that. And it's interesting, like those, those sort of Richard Branson stories. They're all wearing their non. They're all like, I didn't fit in at school. That's their badge of honor. Like you know, the first chapter of the autobiography is always that. Yeah. And so you know, I I, I just think it's 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 a really interesting. It, it it is and will change for sure, but it, you know certainly it's it's uh, something to think about. Yeah, it is, and I don't want to go too deep on this, but I always do this on this podcast. Yeah. I I always think about you know you hear about these big powerful individuals, CEOs of big companies, whatever it is, and it's so interesting to see how many of the decisions that they make, which have such a massive impact, impact are driven by oh well actually they weren't accepted at school. And now they need to feel like this and all these things. And it's, it's fascinating. And maybe it's, is it, you know, the, the tail wagging the dog here of, well, I didn't fit in school. So now it's like, right, I've got to make this back up and, and go that far. Or, or is it, I didn't fit in because I was always going to be that. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's a huge question. And I think, you know, the, the CEO thing is fascinating about like, you know, how much of a sociopath you've got to be to be a CEO, basically. Yeah. To be like able to make those decisions and accept the consequences. And it's not normal. And that's yeah. why... There are, you know, literally hundreds of these people in the UK, not yes. tens of thousands. And as a CEO of a company, I can confirm. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there you go. You see. <laughs> so, are you, are you, what's your role now, other, other than co-founder, obviously? But what, what's your title if there is one? Uh, it is just co-founder. We've never had a CEO. Yeah. Um, maybe, well, we probably will do one day, but I've certainly never been it. And um, yeah, I never quite understand these people who like, you know, they they run a company with three people and call themselves a CEO. No yes. offense, I'm sure that's right. We we have seventy. Perfect. That's okay. I'm not. I didn't know how many you had. I suddenly <laughs> thought, shit. But um, but do you know what I mean? I'm just like, just get over yourself. Like whatever. Yeah. It's not a CEO thing. But like, I don't. I I never really understand titles. I I do understand them, you know, for you know other, uh, you know, in the context of the world. But I've never been that bothered by them. 
I'm I'm founder now, and I guess that gives you the. I've always been founder, mm. and I guess that just it gives you that like slight okay to be just to say the stupid shit that no one else will say. Absolutely. Um, but the biggest danger, the bit that I try and get away from, is like anyone thinking that you're right because you're the founder. That's the biggest problem. Of course. Because you say, oh, I think what about this, and sort of the worst version of it. You've created a business where everyone goes, oh, that's that's what we should do. And I, I want people to be like, that is a fucking stupid idea. Always going to be a stupid idea. Let's not do it. Absolutely. It's the most dangerous thing, having blind spots because of, of yes, men and women. Yeah. You know, no, no, it's, it's, it's a killer. It's it's definitely a thing we try and avoid. But yeah. No, I think my you know, my brother has a much more, he, he does food and restaurant design. And that's that's what he does. And I do, I have a much looser job spec, which is sometimes you have a sort of existential crisis about that. And other times you feel like it's great. Absolutely. I know that feeling. Mm. All right, Tom, my second question for you is, is there anything that you wish you had done differently? Oh my goodness, so many things. I wish we'd done uh I wish we'd done burritos. So much easier. So much easier to do. Uh no, I the pilgrimage might have been more fun as well. Yeah, and it, it could have been more fun. Mexico, I mean happy yeah. days. I'm trying to think of the alliteration now though. Can't can't make it work. Um Burrito Brothers. Burrito Brothers. I'm sure that must already must exist. Must be a thing. That must, must be a thing. Um, <laughs> Burrito Brothers. We'll take that. Uh, I, I mean, there, there are so many examples of things that we want to do. We would have done differently. I think you know, there's there's, there's sites you would have taken. There's or not taken specifically. You know, there's um, you know, there's there's little there's little mistakes that we've made in terms of like um, trying to trying to push the envelope on social media where you say something's not quite right and then that has to be pulled back and I think I think we've always we've always stuck to our guns though I think when we've made mistakes we've always definitely put our hand up and been like we totally fucked that up let's change it uh, and I think that's that's the important thing I think you've got to you've got to t- you've got to own those those major mistakes I'm trying to think of the biggest one we've ever made I mean there are just too too many to work we had some horrendous ones early on like you just it's very easy to get complacent about how important like food safety stuff is. But like in the early days, you know, it's just, it, it's quite far down the list because you mm. just like just getting the doors open. But we had, you know, we had an example where we changed a menu item and it, you know, it, it changed the allergens and it caused an issue. And, you know, God, nothing makes you change. You know, we are so hot on that stuff now. Yeah. Like, it's just unbelievable. But you look back and you're like, God, we were so lucky. Well, everyone was lucky involved in that incident. But, you know, mm. You know the amount of things that you know the ball just bounced the right way, and I think you know you've got to remember that when you whenever you've built anything like from scratch, it's um you know you've got you've got to remember that you've been lucky. Yeah, there's no two ways about it. And you might have been in the right place. You know the right. You might be more adapted grabbing the luck when it's there because obviously everyone gets a certain amount of luck. But yeah, you know we we've, we've been lucky. And we started. I've started a thing for um founders of restaurants. So like it's a a dining club essentially, but you have to be the founder. So, you know, you have to have been there on day one of one restaurant going like, shit, what the fuck are we doing? Nice. And actually, it's really nice. I mean, like, the idea is, is like, we get about 50 people each time and three of the founders cook for the others. That's great. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, it's called Lost and Founded. And it's um, it's just a really nice thing. But, but it, it does really celebrate that unique feeling of being there at day one and being like, I have no idea. I think restaurants are particularly acute in that, actually. Mm. There's a very much a like, there's a line where you're like, right, doors are open, customer comes in, first customer. You know, it's just, it's 
it's a very like Fisher Price business type thing. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like, so tangible. It's so you know? tangible. Yeah. yeah, it's all there. You can't do like a, a soft launch. We're going to A B test different cohorts. Yeah. Like it's okay. The doors are open. Yeah, the doors are open. It's happening. Let's go. And so I think yeah, that that is a very unique situation to find yourself in. So it's interesting to to be with to reminisce with it about it with other people who've done it. Yeah, very very cool. And just a, a side question on that. So. When you talk about building out a playbook, for example, things that were maybe lower down the priority list, which are now just standard into the way that you do things and, and all those standardized processes, how long before attempting to scale to a second, third, fourth location, um, how, how far along were the processes in that? And, and were you guys playing it a bit safer in terms of let's make sure we've got everything down before doing that? Because, you know, I've spoken to lots of, of restaurateurs who have got different views and that would be great to get your thoughts. Yeah, I think... Um I mean, I have heart palpitations at seeing how quickly some people scale and how relaxed they are about, you know, not knowing it all. And I think I was certainly in the early days, I was like, I need to know everything. Uh, and I think, I think quite honestly, if we didn't have my brother, we'd probably still, we, I'd still be pontificating over that queue issue <laughs> that we talked about back in the beginning. Like, I think, you know, you do need someone. We always talk about like, you know, momentum versus like analysis and I think you know my brother just hates the fact that I'm like yeah but let's let's get into this problem like what's the issue he's like just fucking do it and then we'll know if it's a problem or not and I think we need that between I think either one of us on our own would have just imploded because I would have just gone nowhere and just gone into a sort of weird like thought bubble yeah uh and he would have probably gone off cliff yeah uh leaving a sort of trail of destruction in his way no offense James <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, between us, I think we get we get we strike the right balance. And I, th nice. I think I see that a lot with like successful businesses. Like you need that that balance. Yeah. Um, a yin and yang, as it were. Or a half and half. You do. You need a half and half. And you need that person who's pushing being like, why? Why not? Like, tell me why not? And I guess you also need the person be like, but why? Yes. Mm. And I think we we did strike that balance. Well, and I look back and it feels head spinningly fast. I think we're like 21 pizzerias now. Wow. Something like that should know the thing <laughs> and uh you know that feels like 10 years that's really really fast but mm -hmm. actually there are plenty of businesses that have done it twice as fast there are yeah. plenty of businesses that have gone to 20 and back down to zero yes in that time and like you know i think we've i think the big moment and you know this is a classic but the big moment is when you can hire people who are better than you mm -hmm. and that takes that takes at least a couple of years yeah. i mean i know in the new vc world it's like start with 100 million yeah. hire all the best people everything's fine but we very much did it the old fashioned way of yeah. like baby steps. And I think the moment you the moment you realise that like this person is better at that than you, that's it's such an, a glorious feeling about, mm. you know, just like, okay, this person really gets it. And I think my favourite moments in Pizza Pilgrims always are the moments where you see something happen that you had no idea was happening, you had no involvement in, and you look at it and you're like, That is brilliant. Couldn't have done it better myself. Yeah. Wouldn't have even got close to doing it that well myself. They're the moments where you're just like, I feel so proud. It's incredible. It's incredible. And maybe actually answers my next question, which I ask everyone, which is what are you proudest of? Those are those are the moments. It's it's when you it's when you see the team like taking something that was a stupid idea that you had and like kind of articulating it better than you ever have. That that's that's the moment. That's the moment where you're like, God, I just get in the way of this bloody business now. Yeah. All right, fantastic. My second to last question. Okay, these so, questions are intense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. What does it take to be successful? Luck. No, it takes a lot of luck. I think it takes... I think... 
I think the thing is that like um, people love icons, right? They love to take one person and be like, that person super fucking successful. And so often it's just not that, it's never that simple. It, it, it's never that simple. Not so often. It's never that simple. Steve Jobs is not the reason that Apple is great. He is, he is a reason and he is like a great icon for making it a reason. And he's a, he's a story that people can buy into that's amazing that they can go, oh my God, that guy, he was a god amongst men. It's not the reason Apple was successful. There's a whole load of other shit going on. And I think, so I think, you know, I, I would say the, the way to be successful, and obviously it's, then you've got to unpack what is successful. Is successful having shitloads of money and being in a castle on your own like Howard Hughes, or is it having no money but a loving family and your health defined successful? And I think, you know, that that's where you get into this whole thing. I'm not going to get into the whole, you know, who wants what out of their life. But, you know, for some people... Being CEO of a FTSE 100 company is successful. I wouldn't, I couldn't, I wouldn't think of anything worse than being a FTSE 100 CEO. It would be my worst fucking nightmare. It would be failure with a capital F for me. <laughs> and I think, but you know, but we love to think that the people who are those people are the successful people. Mm. But I bet if you saw the full picture, let's do a kind of, um, you know, a sort of big brother CEO. Jesus, that's fucking miserable. God, can you imagine that? Oh, I mean, it'd be horrendous. You, you would, you would have to shut that house down. Any but yeah, day. but I think you know. I think the point is that like success is different for everyone. Yeah. It's you know for for men, for women, for you know for kids, for grown ups, for sports people, people who like money, people who like hanging out, whatever it is. Like, so this is a really long try answer, but I think um, the point is that successful people are people that work well with other people. I think, mm-hmm. and I think. Successful people are broadly backed up by an amazing team, a lot of luck, an incredible set of circumstances that played in their favor. But they rarely did it alone. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. I totally agree. And and I one of the reasons I love asking these fairly open-ended questions is people do go down the route of, well, actually, we need to unpack, you know, what success means. And, and you know, it's always amazing to hear different people's views on it. Somehow the market values, you know, people who move money around more than nurses. Mm. But there's a very interesting version of the world coming in 100 years where AI can do a surgeon's job, a lawyer's job, a financier's job. Can they do bedside care? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, I love the There's a glorious version of the world where, like, nurses are the best paid people in our society. And that that alludes, you know, that that leans to a completely different skill set that maybe all the CEOs didn't have. And the whole thing flips on its head. Yeah, I mean, I love, nice. I love the optimism of 100 years. Uh, I think... Well, like know, 100 days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like 100 days, exactly that. Um, and I think uh, I have controversial views around reality. Fundamentally, that doesn't exist. But there is a very, very good chance that we are all just AI already, I think. Um, so I, I, I think... Uh, that's a whole bigger thing. That's but, a whole bigger thing. But I do think, I mean, I re- re-watched Ready Player One the other I've day. actually never seen it. It's fucking great. Yeah? Yeah. Well, just because it's great because it's just an action-packed, brilliant movie with loads of geeky references from, like, 80s nice. pop culture, which just makes me smile. But the concept that, you know, people will want to live in an alternate reality that can exist, that can provide them with all of their social, emotional needs. This... Yeah. No, it's this. It, this, yeah. is, this it's is, happening already. It's, we're already there. It's yeah. just going to be more immersive. Yeah. You know, but... but if you go on a tube, as I'm sure you do, and you're Many underground, times. and you come out, and you watch every single hand go Completely. into every pocket yeah. and pull it out and wait for the signals to restart, we are all living in a desired, uh, simulated 
reality already through our phones. And it's just a question of when does that immersion blur the idea of whether we're there totally already or not. But why, if this isn't reality anyway, why would they bother creating a second reality within the re uh, the non-reality? So I, I don't think it's, um, you know, it's like a simulated reality that we live in which someone has created purposefully. It's more just around technological capabilities. So for example, have you played around with ChatGPT at all? Uh, a lot. Fine, fine. So imagine a state-of-the-art immersive VR or augmented reality environment where state-of-the-art graphics and, you know, if you see a... Uh, someone playing FIFA right now. You don't know if it's a real game of football. You don't know if it's a game of FIFA. Like it's it's that. the lines are blurring. The lines are blurring. Now, if you were in a social situation within a VR realm, you've got ten avatars. Four of them, five of them, real people. Five of them are just utilizing ChatGPT. You tell me if you know who is someone else in another VR mask and in the in the simulation with you, and who, what is ChatGPT? There is no way that you can possibly know. And I just think um, if you're seeing the, the deep fakes that are coming through, I think there is a total crisis of consciousness around what is simulated and what is reality. And if we believe that that would be possible in 10, 20, 30 years, the likelihood of it having already occurred and, and therefore us being in a version of that. So I don't think it's like a malicious or like really controlled, yeah, someone's doing this to us. But it's more just if we think that that can be possible, yeah. then it probably has happened and what's the likelihood that we're the first this is literally like a storyline from hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy <laughs> i just love that thing in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy we know there are an infinite number of worlds we know that only a finite number of the worlds are inhabited any finite number divided by infinity is zero so all of this is bullshit <laughs> i'm just interesting. like and i'm out interesting okay yeah. all right I, I love that my last question for you 16 year old tom walks in the room right now what are you going to tell him get into bruce springsteen You've missed four years not getting into him. You could go and see him on the. Uh, you could go and see him on the first E Street Band tour if you went now. Uh, on the first reunion tour, I mean. It's great uh, advice. Uh, I mean, it's great advice. I'm a big Springsteen fan. I'm going to see him five times in four countries this this year. Nice. I'm seeing him at BST this year. Nice. I'll see you there. Nice. Um, yeah. So definitely do that. Uh, what else? I mean, put money on Donald Trump to Donald Trump to be president. Obviously, Good. safe bet. I don't think I've got any like amazing, amazing blow, blow your head off advice, unfortunately. No, I love that. Bruce Springsteen, Donald Trump. You heard it here first. Go now. Tom, Go now. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. No worries.